Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 this evening. My mom is with the Lord now. She graduated to heaven um, in 2019, November of 2019, and uh, at the age of 87, I believe. Am I correct on that? I always get that wrong. It was 87, so she lived a full a full life and, and learned grace and all that, usually. But she wasn't always gracious with me when it came to emails she would send to me. She would send me regularly, weekly, sarcastic emails. And as, when an 87-year-old mom sends you sarcastic emails, you read them and you have fun with them, right? I have one of those with you this, uh, this evening or as I talk with you. This is an email she sent to me probably back, uh, she was in her early 80s, and she thought I would like this one. And it's called Questions We Are Afraid to Ask. Remember, my mom sent these to me. Questions We Are Afraid to Ask. Question number one, if corn oil is made from corn and vegetable oil is made from vegetables, what is baby oil made of? (laughs) So, uh, okay, mom. Another one, why do we press harder on a remote control when we know the batteries are going dead? It's a good question. Another question. Why does someone believe when you say there are four billion stars? They believe you, but they always check when you say the paint is wet. Interesting. Or how about this one? This is a thought-provoking one. Why didn't Tarzan have a beard? Anyone ever wonder about that? Clean shaven? Here's another one from mom. If people evolved from apes... Why are there still apes? <laughs> That's a good question. We don't believe that they evolved from apes. Uh, is there ever a day that mattresses are not on sale? That's a good question. Or here's just two more. Why do people keep running over a string a dozen times with their vacuum cleaner, then reach down, pick it up, examine it, and then put it down to give the vacuum one more chance? You ever think of that? And here's the one, the last one is the one I think my mom was probably jabbing me with. She says, the statistics on sanity is that one out of every four persons is suffering from some some type of insanity. So Jim, think of your three best friends. If they're okay, what does that mean? (laughs) Thanks, mom. Still, I save her email. Well, that's a good question. Oh, there are, you know, what are the questions we are afraid to ask? I, I do want to lob one more question of my own into that. What are questions that we're afraid to ask? Here's a question that's truly hard. Why do I do what I do? That's a good question. That's a question people are, are afraid to ask. Why do I do what I do? There are different ways to answer that. Many of you are familiar with the writings of Paul Tripp, a biblical counselor with decades of of wisdom and biblical counseling help for parenting and for marriage and just for the Christian life and becoming more like Jesus. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Whiter Than Snow. I've quoted from it from time to time. It's a thin book, white cover, whiter than snow, and he's going through a psalm in that book. in that book, Psalm 55, excuse me, Psalm 51, David's Prayer of Repentance. And so you can see where he gets the title, Whiter Than Snow. 
And it's just a collection of daily readings from Psalm 51 and comment on it. And one of those entries, Paul Tripp writes an observation about the, the reality of what he calls enough. The word enough. Get that in your mind as I read this, a portion of this entry from Paul Tripp. Because I've asked a question, why do I do what I do? Paul Tripp would answer it with, it's an issue of enough. Listen to Paul, quote, Enough is a persistent problem this side of eternity. Enough is what we seldom seem to get right. Enough is what trips us up again and again. Enough is one of our deepest sources of trouble. Enough is what we find such difficulty in being satisfied with. Although the definition is different for each of us, the struggle with our enough is that it tends to keep expanding. And when it does, we never seem to have, what? Enough. One more paragraph from this. He says, quote, You get angry in traffic. You get irritated at people. You overeat. You fantasize yourself beyond God's boundaries. And you get addicted to power, possessions, and people. Precisely because in your sin, you are not satisfied. That's profound. We do what we do because we are not satisfied with what we do. Back to Trip. What God has given you in the awesome gift of his grace in Christ Jesus is simply not enough for us, we think. Christ-satisfied hearts live joyfully inside of God's will, while dissatisfied hearts fall prey to all kinds of temptations. Enough is the war that rages inside of us every day, end quote. Why do we do what we do? It's an issue of enough. Or in other words, let me, let me give you another answer, way to answer that question. Why do we do what we do? Paul Tripp says it's an issue of enough, and I agree. But I also, as I say in your notes there at the top of your notes, every sinful choice I make, is sourced in idolatry. Every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. That's the true biblical theological answer to our question, why do I do what I do? As a matter of fact, we've looked in our introductory message to this series, we looked at Romans 1.25, remember this? Paul says, for they, unsaved man, for they, can we say this, we, for we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Paul's words in Romans 125 answer our question, why do I do what I do? Because every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. I think someone or something other than the creator himself can satisfy me. And give me enough. 
So what we've been doing on Sunday nights leading up to Christmas, and we're resuming tonight, is we've been studying Psalm 23. We've been seeking to elevate in your hearts and in my heart the Creator over the gifts of the Creator. The Creator over the creature. We are, we are wanting to see our Creator in high definition for those moments of temptation when worship decisions are being made. And Psalm 23 so far hasn't been a disappointment in helping us with that. An amazing psalm that we are wrestling back from the funeral homes where we usually only hear Psalm 23. This is not a psalm for the dead, it's a psalm for the living. It's speaking with clarity and urgency to us today. It has not disappointed us. As a matter of fact, this psalm is on course in preparing us to finally say enough. Enough. In our last study before uh, Christmas break, we, we considered verses 20, or chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. And we saw here that he is indeed enough. Our shepherd is enough. We saw in verse 2 that he gives us a comprehensive contentment with this life. A contentment with him. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He takes me to what I need to have, to what I will, I will most enjoy ultimately, because it's a gift from him, the perfect giver. He, in other words, that's a comprehensive contentment he provides. We saw in the next phrase where it says he leads me beside quiet waters. That's a comprehensive security. He takes me only where he will go with me to sustain me and to keep me safe. He didn't take these lambs towards rocky bottom, deep, rushing riverbeds where the sheep's life would be in jeopardy. He took them where they could go, and he stayed with them. That's a comprehensive contentment, a comprehensive security. Then we saw in the beginning of verse 3, it says, he restores my soul. What is that? That's a comprehensive correction. Just because he's our good shepherd, and just because he's keeping us safe and going with us and giving us enough, doesn't mean at times he doesn't have to rescue us. This word for restore is talking about going to us when we are in a bad place and bringing us back to a good place in our own hearts. And then we saw, fourthly, at the end of verse 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's a comprehensive guidance. No matter where we go on his path, as we follow the shepherd, he is taking us and leading us where he exactly wants us to be. That's not just the general life plan. That's after we mess up. You golfers, when you, when you shank one off the first tee, you like how I'm using golf now for illustrations? I'm, I'm starting to expand my, my world. When you, go up, when, you, when you slice like I do off the first tee, it goes in the woods. Your next shot isn't back to the tee to try it again. Wherever you are buried in the woods with your golf ball, the next best, best shot is from there towards the towards the pin, towards the green, or at least in that direction. You're never going to find your life in a situation where there's no place to go after the worst mess-ups. Your shepherd 
provides a comprehensive guidance to you. So we've seen just in verses 2 and 3 a comprehensive contentment, security, correction, and guidance. No wonder David launches this psalm with the words he does in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what does it say? I shall not want, I shall not lack, I shall not be in a situation where I say I don't have enough. Not with my shepherd. In other words, verse 1 is saying, I'll always be in a position of advantage, not disadvantage. You say, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's verses 1 through 3. We got it. How about that? I mean, he's making quite a claim in verse 1. He proves it in verses 2 and 3 that there's no lack. Comprehensive means there's no lack ever. You say, yeah, that's cool. I know that psalm. But I have an objection to that. It's called life that I've experienced, you might say. What about the really bad days? What about the worst case scenarios? I mean, I know the psalm works when things are going well and the snow's melting and the sun's out and the, and the lions are in the playoffs. I know, I know the verse works good on those days, but what about the worst case scenarios? In those days too, like when you've experienced broken trust, does verses 2 and 3 work then? How about those days where you are navigating economic ruin? Those days too? What about marriage panic and crisis? Those days too? What about a rebellious teen? What about a wayward child, either young or adult? Those days too? What about a long depression? As John Piper calls it, the darkness that just won't lift. Those years too? Those weeks too? What about a dark addiction? Others may not know about it. It might be digital. It might be substance. Then again, others may know about it. What, what, what about in those days? In those seasons? What about a destroyed friendship? What about an academic valley? What about chronic pain, like many in our church suffer from, and two of them are getting ready to go to heaven? What about those days? What about a psychological label that's been laid across your file? What about a raging enemy in your life? What about a wagging tongue of gossip? How about those days? What about persecution for your faith? What about that? What about false accusations? I want to know, is this psalm comprehensive on the worst of days in the worst case scenarios? Really? Is he always there? Well, we have to admit something as we answer our objection. And we have to admit this, that if this shepherd that we're studying is enough for the absolute worst days, the un 
undebatable, worst-case scenarios. If our shepherd's enough for those days, then will he not be enough for anything lesser? It's a good question. It's a good answer. That's where chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 takes us. Because in verses 4 and 5, we're not just going to see the comprehensiveness, we're going to see the constancy of his care. And we're going to put, the, we're going to put verses 4 and 5 to the test. We're going to push it right to the wall with those two verses. If our shepherd's so good, then he's going to be able to survive these two ultimate case scenarios. These two extreme ex, uh, scenarios, these two worst days. And so what I want you to see in this text, in verses 4 and 5, is his presence is always with you. I have it worded as a question. As we go through the text, you have to answer it. His presence is always with you? Number one, I want you to see in these verses, his presence tested. His presence tested. We can brag all we want about something. Uh, Scott Elwert is such a big help of 4D men uh, with the food and always the, the giveaways and just energy, just energy, Scott energy. And we were talking uh, yesterday, I think it was before, or yeah, yesterday morning before 4D while we were waiting for the guys to show. He's been nerding out the Gordy Howe Bridge development. You know, that thing, I saw a picture of it this week, and I told him about it, you know, the progress, and he's like, oh, they got cameras on this thing, man. You can log in online and track it, and there's, there's videos, and you can watch him put it up, the different sections and what's involved in each section, and, and he's scrolling through these pictures on his phone with me, and I was like, that's really impressive. It's, it's really impressive when you watch that thing come together. It's one thing to say the Gordy Hollow Bridge is going to have six lanes and a pedestrian and a bike lane as well. And it's going to span right around two miles, a suspension bridge. And it's just going to be just filled with traffic between our two countries. It's pretty exciting, a new bridge. We can talk about it and look at all the pictures all we want, but at some point, you better take it to the bank. They're not, they're not just talking about it. They're testing that thing. They're testing those cables. There's two sets of cables for every 15 feet or something like that. Ask Scott after church. He'll show you the pictures. Um, true story. They're testing that thing at every level. The engineers, the construction workers. Don't just claim something. Don't just brag about something. Test it. Well, I want to do that with our shepherd and the care that we're promised here and the satisfaction. So look at verses 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. What is this? This is the shepherd's presence tested. These are two worst-case scenarios. We want to test this all the way, so we want to present the claims of our shepherd and his sufficiency and our satisfaction in his enough. We want to test that to the wall. 
And so what he does is he looks at two extremes. He looks at death, and he looks at enemies. Not enemies like, I don't like your team, enemies. Not enemies like, you like blue, I like green. Not enemies like political tickets. In this context, these enemies wanted to take your life, the first opportunity. If they could get close enough to you, they would kill you. If they can't get close enough to you to go hand to hand or sword to sword, then they're going to, that wasn't what you thought I just said, uh, swords were long, um, they, will, they will take care of it with an arrow or a javelin or a spear from a distance. These enemies are an extreme case. I think we can agree. And so is death itself. It says here in verse 3, uh, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, what are we going to do with that phrase? What is that? Th that phrase or similar phrases to that occur almost two dozen times just in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples for you to write down, and I'll read for you. Write down Psalm 44, 19. I'll read that to you. Psalm 44, 19. Just, I want you to hear this wording. He says, you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Uh, listen to Job, of all people. He would have something to say about this. In Job chapter 3, verse 5, let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And, the, and, and, and for that night, let darkness seize it. And, and there's just this, this, this feel and talk in Job's language of a darkness that is crushing, like a shadow of a valley of death. And Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 6 would be another example of this. I'll just read it to you. Just to hear the wording again. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through the land that no one crossed, where no man dwelt. That, that concept and that, that translation of a deep darkness is translated, can be translated, the shadow of death, as we saw with Job. We're, we're talking here of the ultimate experience of dying, death, leaving this world. And I find it interesting, didn't we just find out in his comprehensive guidance, just a few lines above this in verse 3, didn't we find out that he'll always take us where he wants us to go, where we will be okay under his care? He guides us like that? Do you understand, because it's in the next verse, the valley of the shadow of death is on our path. If it wasn't on his good path for our life, then we wouldn't see it. If it wasn't part of his will for us, this valley is part of the map of our shepherd. When we're talking about death, the psalm writer is saying, so here's what I want you to do. I want, I want to show you how awesome this shepherd is. And I want you to walk right up to the edge of death, of life and death. And you're going to find at that point, while you're still alive, but you're looking at death, you're looking at, at ceasing to live in this life, the land of the living, as Scripture says, 
even right there in those moments, the shepherd is enough. Your shepherd is good. Again, I want you to hear from Job. Just write these, this reference down. Job 10, 20 through 21. Feel his, his deep feelings on this topic. Job 10, 20 through 21. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw for me that I may have a little cheer before I go and, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep sorrow? The land of utter gloom is darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. Words for death. And the psalm writer here, David, is saying right up at that point, at that extreme, you will be able to say when the time comes, as it's on the path he's guiding you on, you will find him in that moment sufficient. You will find him in that moment enough and so satisfying. That's an extreme. We're testing it. And we're finding that in that extreme situation, he's there and he's enough. But there's that other extreme we saw, not just death, but we also saw the extreme of enemies who want to take your life. They look you in the eye and they wish you were dead. They would set up a military campaign to destroy you, to kill you, and everyone on your side of the battle lines, that enemy. Say, where do we see that? In verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. In the presence of your enemies. See, tell me about that extreme. I mean, there's not much to say outside of the, the, the weapons they would use to extinguish you. If you're eyeball to eyeball with an enemy like that, as David is describing it, your eyeball, uh, eyeball with someone that will normally create great fear and trembling in your knees and your heart. I mean, if you're that close to someone who wants to take your life, you are in like the most vulnerable position you could imagine. You would want to be anywhere else but eyeball to eyeball with an enemy. So, I think you have to agree with us, agree with David here, that we've picked out two great ways to test the shepherd. Is he enough all the way to death, to that extreme? No matter how death shows up, suddenly or slowly? Or is he enough when we're eyeball to eyeball with our enemies? That's his presence tested. Secondly, I want you to notice this. I want you to look at his presence felt. I'm using that word on purpose. His presence felt. And I want to ask you, as you look down at the page, um, what kind of feelings are you seeing here? Uh, look again at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, watch this line, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and, their, and your staff, they comfort me. Say, what do I feel in the worst case scenarios because my shepherd is with me? Two things. No fear in those moments and comfort. Those are his words. No fear and comfort. 
Let me suggest uh, ways to look at each of those. When we talk about no fear, it means we are at what? Peace. There might be a storm raging on the outside, but there's a peaceful sunset on the inside. If we were to change testaments to the, to the New Testament, look at the Greek. The Greek word for this is erine. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Peace. It means nothing that's going on on the outside affects the calmness and serenity on the inside. No fear. That means peace. What, what, what do we do with this word comfort? Comfort. Comfort isn't the absence of stimuli. Comfort means that you have everything you need in that moment actively that is producing a joy in you. A joy that I believe produces a contentment. That's his presence felt, listen, in the, most, the two most extreme scenarios. Peace and joy. You say, come on, we were talking about feelings here. Is, is this really just all about um, a subjective experience? Is it about your feelings, your affections? And I believe scripture says, you know what? It's promising you this concretely. Yes. There will be subjective feelings of peace and joy. The Puritans talk about the analogy of scripture. That means um, let's let scripture comment on scripture. So let's ask scripture. Are we understanding this the right way? Well, Psalm 1611 says, You will make me, or you will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You hear peace and joy there? Psalm 21, verse 6. Look down at the page here, over to the left a little bit. 21, 6. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Isaiah 26 verse 3 agrees. The steadfast of mind, you Lord, will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Yeah. It's downright subjective and it's real. Phillips has written a wonderful two-volume commentary on the book of Psalms. And within that commentary, and even in his study of Psalm 23, he tells the story of a missionary doctor. Do we know any of those around here? A missionary doctor who had leukemia. And this missionary doctor was nearing the end of his life. And right there from that extreme, when he was in the valley of the shadow of death, just right there at the end, this missionary doctor wrote these words. Brethren, David speaks of the valley of the shadow of death. I have now come to the valley, but I find no shadows here. On the contrary, I have found that the path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more until the perfect day. Wow. We've seen his presence tested. We're going to hold it up to death and enemies. 
we've seen his presence felt. There's peace and joy. But I want you to see, thirdly, his presence proven. His presence proven. Those of you old enough to remember the Russians putting the first man, the first Russian in space, one of those called cosmonauts, radioed back to Earth as soon as he was in outer space and in space outside of the Earth's pole there. And, and his report back to his homeland was, I don't see God. If you're old enough to remember, there was a pastor in Texas at that time with the last name of Chriswell. Chriswell heard about that, and his response to his congregation, if that cosmonaut would step out of the spacecraft, he'd see God. <laughs> Prove it, buddy. You know, what I like about this psalm uh, so much that I just treasure, it also proves his presence. It tells you what to look for in even the most extreme situations of an enemy or death itself. In other words, this psalm, listen to this, this psalm is giving us a first-person report from frontiers we haven't been to yet. Did you notice the change to the first person? Oh, it was all he, 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 verses uh, 2 and 3, he, he, he. But when we get to 4, it changes to you and me. It's a first-person report from the, from the extremities that we haven't even gone to yet. They can only radio back to us. What's the proof of the presence? Three things. Because you will find on the worst of days, in the worst of situations, letter A, proof of protection. If he's with you, he's going to protect you, and you're going to find that. Uh, look again at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil... You are with me, okay? How do you prove your presence with me? The rest of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it's that word rod that I want you to, to staple to this point we're making, the proof of protection. This rod was meant for enemies. This rod often was worn on the belt, at the level of the belt, tucked into the belt. Could it be that David, when he took out the lion, the bear, uh, not only seized the lion, seized the bear by the mane with his hand, but killed him with his rod? 1 Samuel 17, 35, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued the lamb from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I mean, he's radioing back from the worst case scenario saying, I'm telling you, I was there. And God was there too to protect me. I was just reading my devotions this weekend um, in Genesis that God, you know, Joseph's in Egypt and you have the whole brothers and all that working out, you know, and Joseph discloses himself to, the, to his brothers and they go back and say, Dad, he wants us to come live with him in Egypt. And, and, and Jacob's a little hesitant, and so God speaks to him directly and says, Go. As I have been a loyal, um, I've, I have 
loyally kept up my covenant with you here, I will be with you down in Egypt as well. You, the question isn't to ask, am I down in Egypt now? You, you need to know that when, I'm, when you're down there, I'm going to be down there. And I will protect you. That's the picture of this rod. But we also saw something else in verse 4. Your rod and your, what is the word? Your staff. You see, the rod was meant for enemies. The staff was meant for the sheep. The staff was used to keep your footing steady as you traveled and led the flock. But it was also used to reach out and guide the flock. You say, well, you mean even when I'm in those extreme situations that can't be any worse than death itself or eyeball to eyeball with an enemy that wants to destroy my, take my life from me? You mean even in those extreme moments, I might still need to be corrected and molded? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your shepherd will be there to guide your heart where it needs to change in the crisis. Well, Kidner has written a great commentary on the Psalms, and he looks at this, and he says, quote, discipline is secure. So there's a proof of protection. Letter B, there's a need of correction. And letter C, in those worst case scenarios, at those extremities, there's a reason for celebration. There's a reason for celebration. So where are you going for that? Well, he's, he, it, it's as we go into verse 5 now, we leave the shepherd analogy and we enter a new analogy. Some sort of banquet. Look at verse 5. You, we're still using that first person now, we changed to at the beginning of verse 4. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows in the presence of my enemies. Understood. So I have a question. Whose table is this? I mean, whose table are we talking about? We only have three choices. This could be the table that belongs to your enemies. Uh, the enemy is running the show, running the banquet, in charge of the menu, and you're at that table. That's one possibility. A second possibility is, well, it, it could be your table. I mean, you're just hosting a bunch of people and for some reason you felt, you felt kind and you invited your enemies to that table. It could be your table. And there's a possibility, and, and some commentators will go one of those first two ways, but I go with the third choice. It's not your enemy's table. It's not your table. It's his table. It's your shepherd. It's your heavenly father. It's his table. This is not a banquet to celebrate a birthday. This is not a table where your enemy is threatening you. There's no threat at this table. This is a banquet of triumph over the enemy. 
Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that, that Christ leads us in triumph. What is that? It was often in those days that after a, 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 an army would triumph over another army, it would take captives and lead those captives through the city in shame on the way to a banquet of celebration and most likely an execution. That's the scenario David would have in mind. Even think Samson. What happened when the Philistines gouged his eyes out? Cut his hair, gouged his eyes out. Remember that? Put him on a millstone. And, and then they were throwing a banquet at one point and they wanted to bring him in to gloat over him. The enemy that they had conquered. But what's neat about verse 5, this isn't our table. It's not our enemy's table as they, they, they gloat over us. This is our Lord's table where he's gloating over our enemies. And we have seats of honor around the one who delights in us. There's a reason for celebration. One of my favorite preachers alive today, I have about half a dozen. I mean, I like a lot of preachers. And I can't help but love the guy that preached this morning after he called me a great theologian. But seriously, one of my favorite preachers is a guy younger than me, H.B. Charles. And H.B. Charles wrote a, an article based on this psalm. It's called, My Cup Overflows. It comes from a sermon he preached. I want you to hear my brother's reflections on this psalm and this banquet and this cup that's overflowing. Think about that cup at a victory banquet thrown by your father, the conqueror, to bring you joy. H.B. Charles says, Psalm 23 is not the boast of a spoiled youth. This is not the testimony of a trouble-free life. It is not the memoir of a peacetime king. David was a neglected shepherd boy in his father's house. David was a fugitive from the murderous ways of Saul. David was a father whose rebellious children broke his heart. David was a wartime king who faced one enemy after another. David was an exile whose own sought to overthrow him. Yet David exclaims, my cup overflows. He continues, unbelief only sees an empty cup. Doubt debates whether the cup is half full or half empty. Worry fears the cup will be lost, broken, or stolen. Faith sings of an overflowing cup. My cup is tied to my shepherd. You cannot separate the cup that overflows from the hand that pours. Cups break, but God has more cups in the cupboard. When your cup breaks, God is able to give you another cup. If you know and trust the hand that pours into your cup, you can sing, my cup overflows, no matter the circumstances. Just a few more sentences. H.P. Charles continues, Because of Christ, your cup is not empty. God pours favor into your cup. And it's not just a sip. God fills our cups to the brim. He doesn't stop there. God pours until our cup overflows. Do not complain that you do not have 
what you desire. Thank God that you do not have what you deserve. Do not compare, compete, or complain. If you try to move your cup, you will miss the outflow that leads to overflow. The Lord can make your cup overflow wherever you sit. That's just one part of a celebration scene where the enemies, your enemies, have been conquered by your king. And he overflows your cup. He anoints your head with oil. Mm. So, yeah, we understand from verses 2 and 3 that he provides this shepherd, your shepherd, provides comprehensive contentment, comprehensive security, comprehensive correction, and comprehensive guidance. You'll never be without. But hopefully tonight we understand as we look at verses 4 and 5, you'll never in this life as a lamb of this shepherd, never, you'll never be the exception. Never in this life will you ever be without comprehensive contentment, security, correction, and guidance. Even in the worst of days, the most extreme of situations like death and enemies. Never. So he'll be there for you tonight. He'll be there for you tomorrow. He will be there for you this week. He'll be with you this winter, this year, this decade, this trial. He's there. If what the psalmist says is true in the most extreme of scenarios, then you're covered. You're covered. Paul Tripp, I opened with one of his quotes. I want to share another one with you. He says, there will be a day when we will be satisfied. There will be a time when what God has given us will be enough. There will be a moment when we will all be so satiated by the presence and glory of the Lord that we will finally be free from the desire for more. It's true. You say, when is that day? Again, the psalm writer kind of gives us the answer. In Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. I have in your notes there a quote from biblical counselor Dave Paulison. He's the one who wrote the anti-Psalm 23 that we read a few weeks ago. And I wanted you to take these words home with you. He writes, What one thing about God and Christ speaks directly into today's trouble? Just as we don't change all at once, so we don't swallow all of truth in one gulp. We are simple people. You can't remember ten things at once. Invariably, if you could just remember one true thing in the moment of trial, you'd be different. Bible verses aren't magic, but God's words are revelations of God, from God, for our redemption. 
when you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out his voice, switching channels, and listening to other voices. And when you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. Yeah. Start with remembering. Start with remembering your shepherd. Because even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. For Yahweh is with you. Yahweh's rod and his staff, they will comfort you. He'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He'll anoint your head with oil and your cup will overflow. Start with remembering your shepherd. You say, all right, um, got it. I'm not facing one of those two extremes right now. I'm facing some heavy stuff, but I'm not almost dead. And I'm not facing enemies that want to take my life. But even if I were, he would be there with me. I got it. I got verses four and five down, or three and four down. Four and five, excuse me. I got it down. But I still have a question. My question is this. Not only is he, the shepherd, comprehensive in his care and constant today, no matter where today takes me, he'll be constant with his care. I want to know about tomorrow. I want to know about every day next week. I want to know, is this going to walk with me until I get to that time of death? And that will be our final message in a few weeks. We're going to look at the crescendo of his care. And we'll take a hard look at verse 6. Until then, let's remember, just to remember our shepherd. And maybe, just maybe, that elusive enough might finally be nailed down. Would you stand with me as we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for being our shepherd. How do we thank you for what you've just promised to us again? Generations have come before us reading these words, centuries of your people, millennia of your redeemed, have been looking at these two verses and they lived and died saying it's true. And it's our turn now. Will we ignore the voice of our shepherd in Psalm 23 and try to find something better, something lasting, something with a better buzz or a more sure security? Or will we look back at a familiar psalm, retrieve it from the funeral homes, and put it right before our face and remember our shepherd?
Would your spirit grace us with a new memory of that as we press into this week? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.